right. Let's see if I'm on. All right, good. Open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46. Thank you so much for being back here tonight. And uh, my daughter's a Peyton Manning fan, so I'm going to tell her I'm more popular than Peyton Manning. She's not going to believe it at all, not even a little bit. I, I told the preacher earlier that I was going to be able to make it this evening because the Bears aren't playing until later on tonight, so I'm able to actually be in the service, and, and we're glad for that. Um, and, and I was actually wearing my colors. I had a Bears jersey on earlier this week because later in the year, usually, you can't wear it. you know what I mean? So we're, we're looking forward to that, but uh, we'll see what happens. I'm really glad that you're here tonight. And, you know, we do enjoy sports. I, I love it. And, you know, I played all different kinds of sports, none of them well. You know, our basketball team, we said we're short, but we're slow. You know what I mean? I, I love sports. And, you know, the Apostle Paul loved sports. He used lots of sports analogies, wrestling, running, boxing. Um, but how many of you think the Lord's work was more important to the Apostle Paul than sports? It's just, it's interesting, um, and I'm glad that at this church, the Lord rates higher than sports. So you are to be commended, and praise the Lord. I know you're thinking, hey, we're coming to church, you know, what are you talking about? But in this age, it's a blessing to see God's people, this number of people coming out on a Sunday night. So thank you for being here. I'm going to cover two different, Lord willing, I'd like to cover two different things this evening. Uh, the first thing that I'd like to do is just look at a, a, a quick passage of Scripture on why we're doing this. So Isaiah chapter 46, and look at verse 9. Remember the former things of old. Now that's a command. So this is why we study history, because God has told us to. If this was the only verse in the Bible that referred to it, that's enough. Amen? So remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Can anybody say amen to that? Don't we have a great God? And as we looked at in the Sunday school hour, he has revealed himself to us in a knowable and understandable manner. But let me ask you a question. If God was going to write a book, how would we know what kind of book it is? How would, if God was going to write a book, how would we know that he had written it? Well, it would be supernatural because we have a supernatural God. Well, then, how would he manifest that supernatural nature in his book? Well, look at the next verse. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from the ancient times, the things that are not yet done saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Do you, know how, do you know what kind of book God would write? A supernatural book. The way that you would know that it's supernatural is He would write history before it happens. That's a better definition for prophecy than just about anything you're going to hear. Prophecy is God writing history before it happens. Because when God writes it down, it is sure. It will come to pass. What a blessing that is. Is there anyone here looking for the second coming of Jesus Christ? He can come back today. Amen? And here's the deal. The reason we believe that is because for every one verse prophesying the first coming of Jesus, there are eight prophesying his second coming. 
Amen? Well, we have a more sure word of prophecy, folks. It is good to know God and know who He is and what He's doing. The second thing about Christ that you need to know is that He has a plan. God is not reacting to what happens in the world. God has a plan. And His counsel shall stand. One of the reasons that we misunderstand God's work is we became very man-centered in our faith. And it, it hadn't happened before. This is, a, this is a new phenomenon. It happened around the end of the 1800s when we started having the union... Now, I'm not talking about labor unions. I'm talking about Christians coming together for mass revival campaigns. Now, how many of you are for a bunch of people getting saved? <laughs> Praise God, me too. Me too. But what came as a result of that kind of an emphasis... Has anyone ever heard this? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is souls. How many of you have ever heard somebody say that? It's just not true. For every one verse in the Bible on salvation or being saved, there are 50 on the king and his kingdom. What's the center of the Bible? It's Jesus Christ. Amen? We, you, we even think of the great white throne judgment as the place where God is going to settle all the scores and set everything right in the universe. God's a celestial loss adjuster to make sure that the bad people get what they're due and the good people get what they're due. The only problem is there aren't any good people. And the only people at the great white throne judgment are going to hell. Amen? What's the purpose of the great white throne judgment? To display God's awesome and righteous glory. And the one sitting on the throne at the great white throne judgment is our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says, The Father judgeth no man, but hath given all judgment unto the Son. Man, we need to understand. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, I believe it's chapter 19, that... The Spirit of Christ, the testimony of Christ, is the spirit of prophecy. Prophecy in your Bible is not about computer chips and Black Hawk helicopters. Uh, how many of you remember? I remember when I was a kid, we lived in Wallingford, Connecticut. Dad had started a church there, and we got the first UPC code scanners at the grocery store. There were people in our church that wouldn't go to that grocery store because they thought they were going to take the mark of the beast by, you know, having their groceries scanned. How many of you remember people thinking that? Seriously. I got a great book in my office. It's called Prophecy and the 70s. <laughs> it has the psychedelic cover, you know, like a Starsky and Hutch or something. It's wild. You look at all this stuff, and it's amazing how people read newspapers and try and base theology on newspapers rather than getting in God's Word and finding out what He says. Say, Brother Alter, what does this have to do with what we're talking about? God has a plan. We're not going to change God's plan. We're not going to slow down God's plan. We're not going to hurry up God's plan. You know what our best thing to do? Is get on board with God's plan. Amen? 
then we can receive the blessing from God. So now, go with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Let's try and build... I'm so thankful that this is a biblical church. Um, You're not expecting a bunch of stories and illustrations. You're expecting the Word of God. That's a blessing. So let's, let's build a biblical understanding of the church and church history and where we're going. All right? So remember what's happened. Acts chapter 1, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He's been preaching for 40 days the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, Acts chapter 1, that's, or the kingdom of God. That's what it says in Acts chapter 1. Then he tells them to be witnesses. And you shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the earth. So what did they do? Well, they were witnesses in Jerusalem. And then look at what happens. Stephen preaches in Acts chapter 7. He's giving the last offer for Israel's Messiah. Look at Acts chapter 7 and verse 55. Verse 54 for the context. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Can you imagine? It's unbelievable. They started gnashing on him, biting him. They hated him. Why? Because he had told them they had just killed their Messiah. That's what Stephen is preaching. He's preaching to Jews. But he, verse 55, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus seated on the right hand of God. What? I thought when Jesus finished his work, he went and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Why is he standing here? Why is he standing? Sometimes people say he was standing to receive Stephen. No, this was the last chance. This was the last chance for Israel to receive their Messiah. Keep your place here. Go to Matthew chapter 10. Keep your place there in Acts. Remember, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus has called his disciples, and now he's sending them. Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. That's what your pastor tells you to do in your visitation meeting, right? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out devils. And only give the gospel to Jews. No Gentiles, no Samaritans. Is that what happens at your visitation meeting? No. Why not? Because Jesus Christ was the Jewish Messiah offering the kingdom to the Jews. Amen? 
Well, then he died, rose from the dead, gave himself as a sacrifice. He's still making that offer to the Jews in the early part of the book of Acts, and they refuse it. They kill Stephen. Don't go to the Samaritans, they've been told. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death, Stephen's death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which is at Jerusalem. Now let me say this. I'm getting ready to deal with this issue of baptism not being for today. All right? There is a move, it's called hyper-dispensationalism. We have just demonstrated proper dispensationalism. Jesus Christ came to the Jew first, didn't he? It's, it's very clear. And then he established the church when the Jews rejected him. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. Everybody believes in two dispensations. Every true Christian does. So we're, we've demonstrated some proper dispensationalism. Anybody sacrifice? Anybody kill an animal so that your sins could be covered this morning? Well, you would have done it yesterday, not today. Amen? So we understand proper understanding of dispensationalism. But there is a movement called hyper-dispensationalism that says that we no longer need to baptize, that baptism is not for this dispensation. There are people who believe that the church did not begin until the Apostle Paul. And since Paul said, I came not to baptize but to preach the gospel, they say that baptism is not for this age or this time. Well, if the church did not begin until the Apostle Paul, who was Saul persecuting in Acts chapter 8? These people just need a wristwatch. They need a calendar. It's, it's very interesting. How, you know, they, they, Jesus described them as straining as a, at a gnat and swallowing a camel. That's exactly what's going on in the text. We don't have to worry about that. Look at what happens here. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul was contending unto his death. And you understand that is the apostle Paul before he was saved, right? You all got that? And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time... There was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were scattered, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. What did Jesus Christ say in Acts chapter 1? You shall be witness of me in Jerusalem and in Judea and in all Samaria. What's happening right here? The disciples are being scattered into Judea and Samaria. Then look at what it says in verse 2. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation, lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hauling men and women, committed them to prison. Look at verse 4. Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Would you look at verse 4? You might want to mark verse 4. I mentioned to you a minute ago that you are not going to speed up God's plan and you're not going to slow down God's plan. Amen? Remember Jesus Christ taught us how to pray? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. 
By praying that, is the kingdom going to come faster? Is it going to come slower? No, he just wants us to know it's his kingdom. Amen? Here's what I want you to see from this verse in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. You can either be, God's going to use you. You can either be a vessel of honor or a vessel of dishonor. Either way, God's going to use you. It's your choice. God used Paul to spread the gospel before he was saved and after he was saved. Is that cool? It is so awesome. Sometimes we think that we're really important. <laughs> you know, preacher was joking and saying that I'm more popular than, than Peyton Manning. Man, if this meeting ever becomes about me or the preacher or anyone else, we have missed what God wants in this place. Amen? It's all about Him, His plan, His work, and it is coming true. So here's what happens. He says, you're going to be witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So here's what happens. They're in Jerusalem. They get scattered into Judea and Samaria. And look at the first thing that happens now in verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Was Philip disobedient? And a hush fell on the congregation. No. No. Not at all. Jesus Christ had established the church. He had told them to wait until the Holy Spirit came. And after the Holy Spirit came upon them, they were to go and preach the gospel to every creature. Mark 16, 15. Amen? That is now our command and our commission until the Lord returns and this world as we know it ends. That's our plan. So here's what happens. They're in Jerusalem. They get scattered to Judea. Philip goes to Samaria. Then Philip is called to the wilderness to meet a man, an Ethiopian eunuch, in his chariot. He comes to him. The man's reading the book. He's come to Jerusalem to worship, and he's confused because of the mess that he saw. And he's reading the book of Isaiah, and it's Isaiah chapter 53. Philip says to him, Understandest thou what thou readest? He said, How can I, except some man show me? Do you know that that's still true? That's still true. And what did he do? And beginning at that scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Man, is Jesus in Isaiah 53? I guarantee you, he was, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of uh, our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone's turned into his own way, and the iniquity, uh, and God has put on him the iniquity of us all. I mean, that whole chapter is about Jesus Christ. The whole thing is about Jesus. And he preached Jesus to him there. And then what did the eunuch do? The eunuch went back to Africa and preached the gospel. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, outermost parts of the earth. Isn't that awesome? That's God's plan, and it is still God's plan. Now, go with me to Matthew chapter 28. Y'all having a good time tonight? Man, I love studying God's word. 
Matthew chapter 28. Let's look at verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Man, that's a great verse. We worship a great Savior. Amen? So now he's going to give them what we call the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you alway, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Here's what I want you to see, and it is very, very important. In the con- How many of you know some people that, that are getting messed up in this area of baptism? Y'all know some people that are like that? Here's the problem. People just don't believe the words as they're written. There's no way that you can open up your King James Bible. There's no way that you can open up your King James Bible and come away with anything other than what we are talking about tonight. You can't do it. Jesus Christ is giving this command as the all-powerful Savior, giving the command to the church, to these disciples who are to go out and establish the church. Amen? It's exactly what's happening. And how long is that command in effect? Until the end of the world. When is that? Let's go to Revelation chapter 20. Remember, all we're doing is reading the words of Scripture. We're not doing a whole lot of interpreting. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. How many of you believe that the elements are going to melt with a fervent heat? Y'all believe that? When does that happen? The Bible says that Jesus Christ himself upholds all things with the word of his power. Talk to a physicist and ask him how an atom stays together. You know what they'll tell you? I don't know. Don't have any idea. The, the electrons and the neutrons and the protons and how in the world do they... We, they don't know. I do. Jesus Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. Amen? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Amen. He upholds all things by the Word of His power. But I can tell you this, at the great white throne judgment, when Jesus Christ is sitting on that throne, and before Him stand the the great and small, the dead, great and small, stand before Him. He is no longer their Savior. He is their judge. And he is, stand, he is sitting there in His glory and His righteousness. And it, that glory is revealed at the great white throne judgment in a way that it has not been revealed before then. Why are the heaven and the earth destroyed? Because Satan was in heaven. 
new heaven and new earth, there is no sin. Amen? So how long is the Great Commission in effect for? From the time Jesus Christ said it until the great white throne judgment. Is that the end of the world? That's the end of the world. That's when that commission is over. Jesus Christ returns. We as believers are taken away. Now what happens is God focuses attention on the nation of Israel. During that time, you have the two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, and they go preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through them, 144,000 Jewish witnesses are saved, 12,000 from each tribe. They circle the globe preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, preaching, baptizing, and discipling all through that tribulation period. Do you know what happens during the kingdom? During the kingdom, when Jesus Christ is sitting on his throne, people are accepting him as their Messiah or rejecting him as their Messiah. You say, wait a minute, I never thought about that. Well, who is it that, 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 uh, that Satan takes when he's loosed at the end of the millennium to make war against the Lord Jesus Christ? Those people that get saved through the tribulation period and enter into the millennium, those people are saved. They have their physical bodies and they have children. Some of those people accept Christ. Some of those people reject Christ. Those that follow Christ enter with Christ into eternity. Those who reject Christ unite with Satan at the end of the kingdom. Do you know what that tells us? How many of you have ever heard someone say, boy, I, I could believe in God, but there's too much pain and suffering in this world? You ever heard somebody say that? Well, during the millennium, Jesus Christ is sitting on the throne of David, ruling with a rod of iron. The lion is lying down with the lamb. There is only justice. There is no injustice. Do you know why people reject Jesus Christ? Because they want to. Amen? So how long is the Great Commission in effect for? Until the end of the world. Why didn't Paul baptize? Well, he did. In 1 Corinthians, in the very text that they use, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you, save Gaius. Here, let's look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1. We, all, we doing okay? I, I was grieved in my, in my spirit when I heard about the trouble that your loved ones are going through. And so I wanted to spend a little bit of time on this for you tonight. And I hope it's helping you. Look at what the Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. Well, he did baptize some of them then, didn't he? Lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. Now, now, let me make something very clear. That's not saying that those are the only people he ever baptized. Those are the only people he baptized in Corinth. Because he had to baptize people in a specific city to establish a church there. And he did that on the basis of his apostolic authority. He could do that. He was, he was given the commission. You see? And so in each of the cities where he went, he would lead people to Christ, he would baptize them, he would get them grounded in the faith, and then he would send Titus or one of his disciples back to ordain pastors. 
as they had grown in the faith. So the idea that baptism is not for this age is simply ludicrous. It cannot be defended from the scriptures. All right? We must see that. So that's the end of that portion of this evening's time together. Open your Bibles with me to the book of Acts. Let's see. Did that help you? Help you explain it some? Okay, Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. Let's get into a little bit of history here. Let's look at verse 24. Acts 22, 24. The apostle Paul has been arrested. And the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? I want you to see something from that. The apostle Paul knew the law where he was and used it for his advantage. There's nothing wrong with us using the laws of our land for our advantage. Amen? They're therefore that God has given us that liberty. Let's make sure that we claim it and we stand for it. Then look at what the Bible says. When the centurion heard that, he went and told the chief captain, saying, Take heed what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. Now let me just stop here for a second. Why was he worried about that? Because you did not mess with a Roman citizen. Uh, the Marines used to have this saying, we can be your best friend or your worst enemy. I like that. And we as a nation, we really, if we had that same philosophy, we would have a whole lot less war. You know, you mess with our country, you're not a country anymore. That's the way Rome was. And I'm not saying that we should emulate Rome in everything. What I'm saying is having a weak hand causes more conflict, not less. Does that make sense? Uh, Richard Nixon, that great and moral leader that we had here in the United States, um, that was sarcastic. I hope that you understand that. Um, he wrote a book called No More Vietnams. Anyone ever read Nixon's book, No More Vietnams? And really, it's a fascinating book. You'll understand more about the Vietnam War than you ever would have. He wrote a book, and, and listen to what he said. Any nation that believes it can maintain peace through only peaceful means will soon be a piece of another nation. That's good, isn't it? So here, the Apostle Paul is using that for his advantage. So then look at what the Bible says. Then the chief captain came, this is verse 27, Then the chief captain came and said unto him, Tell me, art thou a Roman? He said, Yea. So he asked Paul, Are you a Roman? Paul says, Yes. Verse 28. And the chief captain answered, With a great sum obtained I this freedom. And Paul said, But I was free born. Your Heavenly Father, please help us as we understand the significance of liberty in your plan. In Jesus' name, amen. What's going on here is this centurion, this captain of the guard, what he had done is he had been a slave, he had been a servant to Rome, and he bought his liberty. How many of you were born in America? You're born in America. How many of you were, you weren't born in America, but you are an American. Your father may have been on station somewhere else, but, but you are an American. 
Anybody? You're, you're Americans, okay? We are free born. Amen? We, I, I had to do absolutely nothing to gain my liberty. Now I am finding that now as an adult, I'm going to have to do some things to keep it. Amen? Where did that liberty come from? We were talking about baptism a little while ago. Um, in 1593, there was a man named Jacob Habegger. He was out mending his fence, and his neighbor, Kurt Luthi, led him to Jesus Christ in Switzerland, soul winning in Switzerland, 1593. You know it's the same gospel? And the same thing works today. You tell people the gospel, the Holy Spirit convicts their heart, they can receive Christ or reject him. When they receive him, they are born again. That happened with Jacob. His wife then got saved, Anne Marie, and they had seven children. Jacob he had a, a real uh, ability with the Word of God. He loved the Bible, and he began studying it. And so there in the Emmental region, it's up near, you've heard of North Face. It's up near where the North Face is in Switzerland. And he was preaching in these house churches there, and the Protestant government found out about it. Now, how many of you have heard positive things about the Protestant Reformation? There are even authors like Peter Manuel, who wrote the book The Light and the Glory, who say that the freedom that we have in America came from the Calvinists and, uh, and the, the Puritans through the Reformation. <laughs> liar, liar, pants on fire. That's what, that's what if you've seen different Christian school curriculums, that's what our children are taught. It's not true. The Protestants hated us. See, now we're told that we have to lay aside our distinctives and accept them. They hate us. Don't miss this. That Jesus Christ said it, John 17, 14, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them. So, Jacob starts preaching the gospel. So the first thing they did, the Protestants arrested him, they took him and tortured him for three months. He finally recanted under torture. Well, they let him home, go home that day. That was a Friday, but on Sunday, his son was going to get baptized at the Baptist church, so he went to church. There was a preacher, William Grusey, a traveling preacher that was there preaching that day, and Jacob couldn't take it. He went to the altar and he confessed his unfaithfulness. He asked the church to forgive him for violating his testimony. And the men in the church came and laid their hands on him and prayed that the Lord would help him to remain faithful. Why don't we do that kind of thing anymore? Amen? Well, faithfulness marked the rest of Jacob Habegger's life. That was 1593. The next thing that happened, how many of you have children? Do you love them? next thing that happened was they took two of his daughters and sold them into slavery. These Protestants sold his little girls into slavery. Now don't miss this. Do you, know, do you want to know why? Right there. That's it. L listen to what I'm saying. 
That is the only reason. They believed in believer's baptism, and the state church said that they became a part of the state church when they're baptized, sprinkled as infants. Habegers just would not accept that. The next thing that happened was 1601, February 14, 1601, they burned his house to the ground. 1604, they took Anne Marie. In the fall of 1603, they took Anne Marie to Traxelwald Prison, put her in there. She spent the winter in there. May of 1604, she died of exposure. Jacob kept on preaching the gospel. Kept on preaching. 16, 14. They arrested him, took him to Traxelwald Castle. They have a torture chamber at Traxelwald. I've been there. It's still there. I went into the torture chamber and I laid on the wooden bed with a hole in it. My hands were put in the, in the manacles. My feet were put in the stocks. And after a few seconds, I couldn't take it anymore. They kept him on that bed, in those chains, in those stocks, listen, for seven years, torturing him. The castle is up on a beautiful mountainside. The village is down below. It's a very quaint and picturesque village. And the people could hear, they often heard Jacob quoting scripture and singing hymns. And through seven years of torture, he remained faithful to his Savior. They finally just gave him a life sentence. He stayed in that prison for 28 years. He wrote tracts and pamphlets on any scrap of paper that he could get with a pencil. And those tracts and pamphlets were used for 100 years in the Emmental region, helping people to know who Jesus Christ is and to understand what faithfulness to his word means. Why was Jacob Habegger willing to do that? Because he understands that if you corrupt the forms, you corrupt the message. There are people corrupting the message all over today. Uh, another quick one was uh, Michael Sattler, 1525. You have to understand, the Reformation came to Switzerland. Remember when the Reformation started? October 31st, 1517. Martin Luther nails his 95 Thesis to the door of the Castle Church, Wittenberg, Germany. And this is, these are his protests against the Roman Catholic Church. About that same time, the Reformation starts taking place in Switzerland. The head of the Reformation in Switzerland is Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli had a friend named Balthazar Hubmeier. Balthazar Hubmeier and he, they were, they were close friends. They came out of Catholicism together. But Hubmeier became convinced of believers' baptism through the Scriptures. You understand that if you've just got a Bible, the only thing you're going to believe in is believer's baptism. You understand that, right? And so he started questioning Zwingli on that. So Zwingli took his friend and put him on the rack. Caused him to recant. This is an old man. He's in his 60s. Remember, his 60s in the 1500s, that was an old man. They put him on the rack and he finally gives in and at the Grossmünster Cathedral, and I've stood there on the platform, famous right there by the Lamat River, where Zwingli would hold forth. They, they had filled the place up to hear Hubmeier recant. Hubmeier goes to the platform, can barely stand. He's holding on to the lector. And he said, Infant baptism is the badge of the whore! They 
dragged him away and he was able to escape only be, to be burned at the stake in, in Germany. Why did they call it the badge of the whore? Because Christians have believed for a thousand years that Revelation chapter 17 is speaking of the Roman Catholic institution. That's what Hubmeyer was talking about. Why was he willing to go through torture and be burned at the stake? Because of baptism. It was important. Felix Manns was another Swiss Baptist, and he, had, he and his friend Conrad Grable and George Blarock, they had come to understand what the Bible says about individual soul liberty and separation of church and state and the local assembly and understanding the scriptural doctrines of the church. 1525. By 1527, they were all dead. All of them were dead. They took Felix Manns out into a boat in the Lamont River. And Zwingli said, if he wants to be baptized, let him be baptized. And they tied chains around him and threw him in the river. Then they put his wife in a bag and threw her over the bridge. Zwingli. There are Christian colleges that have pictures of Zwingli hanging in their Christian college. A Baptist having a picture of Zwingli in his church would be like a synagogue having a picture of Hitler hanging there. Seriously. Martin Luther, Martin Luther, we have a letter from Martin Luther to Henry VIII, King of England, telling him to exterminate the Anabaptists in England because they are a detestable race. So here we are, we are supposed to make peace with Luther when Luther would have killed us. Calvin would have killed us. Zwingli would have killed us. Do you understand that? And it's all over believers' baptism. See, that's why you have two groups diminishing baptism. The hyper-dispensationalists, which is a smaller group, and the one-world church people. The one-world church people are doing it because they understand that baptism always divides. Doctrine always divides. What did Jesus Christ say? He came to set at naught mother and father, sister and brother. Because we can choose either Christ or the world. You can't have both. Baptism is the tool that God has chosen to, for people to identify. In my city, uh, we are a Roman Catholic community. Our, our county has 50,000 people in it. And the Roman Catholic Archdiocese claims 12,000 families. That's almost everybody. You understand that. We're like 98% Roman Catholic. And these are German Catholics. These are people that are devout. We had a lady get saved, young married lady. Her mother went to the priest and said, What does that mean? And the priest said, When a person says they're born again, it means they're demon-possessed. Folks, this is not 500 years ago. This is five years ago. Do you hear what I'm saying? That's the world that we live in right now. These are the people that are telling us we need to come back together. And what they mean is we need to come back to our mother, the Roman Catholic institution. Well, we were never a part of it. 
Baptists have always stood for the truth of the Word of God, for individual soul liberty, and the separation of church and state. So what happened in England? In England, they, they really wanted to be free, but they just weren't. So you had a group of people that come to America, and they're called the Pilgrims. Anyone ever heard of the Pilgrims? And how many of you have ever heard that they came to America for religious liberty? How many of you have heard that? Liar, liar, pants on fire. You say, that's not true. Well, they did want religious liberty for them. Not for anybody else. You had two groups that come. The Pilgrims and the Puritans. The Puritans were people who wanted to purify the Anglican church. The pilgrims were people who had separated from the Anglican church, but they still held to the doctrines of the Reformation and the doctrines of the Church of England. They were just rejecting the king's hierarchy over their particular group of believers. That's what happened. 1620, 1628, Messages Bay Colony, 1630, here they are, they're established. 1635, a man named Roger Williams is banished from Massachusetts. You have to understand, if these people were for religious liberty, why are they killing people? You say, who did they kill? What they would do is they would disfranchise a person. And when they would disfranchise a person, that means they would take all of their worldly goods and set them out into the wilderness. Put them in a boat, put them in with the Indians, and many people died simply of exposure. Others were beaten. You've heard about Obadiah Holmes. What happened was you had John Clark, uh, uh, John Crandall, Obadiah Holmes. They are coming from the church. They had established a church. Roger Williams buys the land, Narragansett Bay area from the Narragansett Indians, and establishes Rhode Island. That's 1635. Around that same time, John Clark, a Baptist, comes. He's a doctor. He comes from England to America. He immediately has to leave Massachusetts. And he goes up into New Hampshire. It was too cold in New Hampshire, so they came south to Rhode Island. Isn't that funny? That's kind of funny. So they go to Rhode Island, and they, they establish what's called the Portsmouth Compact. The Portsmouth Compact is the first document in the history of America, in the history of the modern world, to grant religious liberty. Well, so there, he starts a church, 1638, in Newport. Roger Williams starts his church in 1639 in Providence. Roger Williams did not start the First Baptist Church in America. John Clark did. The way that I understand it is 1638 comes before 1639. Are y'all following me? Okay. The things you learn here, just deep, deep truth. So John Clark's church is still in existence. You can go there and visit it today. Well, Clark, Crandall, and Holmes go over into Lynn, Massachusetts, because they have a member there. It's only a few miles. Over into Lynn, Massachusetts, to have a church service with this fellow, because he was too sick to come over to church. Well, the authorities hear about it, so they arrest them. And they take them into a holding cell, and they bring them into the congregational church the next day. One of the ushers comes by and says, Gentlemen, you should take off your, church, your hats when you're in church. And they looked at him and said, we do take off our hats when we're in church. <laughs> They're saying, we're not in church right now, fellas. We're here because we have been arrested and you have forced us to be here. Well, someone paid Clark's, 
Crandall's and Witter's fines. Obadiah Holmes found out about that, and he said, no, I'm not going to let you pay my fine. And so they beat him with a three-quarted whip, and the witnesses of it said they were tr- that, that the, the executioner was trying to kill him. He got done, and he said, you have beaten me as with roses. Some men helped him down. And you can go to the spot today. I've been there where the Boston Massacre took place. About 30 feet away from that is where Obadiah Holmes was beaten. We know about a bunch of drunks getting shot, but we didn't know anything about a man of God standing for his faith and being tortured for it in America. He was beaten so badly that for three months he had to sleep on his knees and his elbows. It was horrible. He got the same sentence as counterfeiting or forcing a woman. Can you imagine? What for? For holding an unauthorized church service. That's in America. Now, how many of you would consider that religious liberty? Those pilgrims and Puritans did not give us religious liberty. Fast forward a hundred years. Understand, torture, oppression, murder in some cases for 100 years. In North Carolina, they'd gotten tired of it. Baptists in North Carolina were were under terrible persecution. We think of the South as being a place of religious liberty. And it's the Bible Belt, right? That's what we, it wasn't like that then. It was run by, by England, and William Tryon was the king's governor there. He hated the Baptists. And so what he would do was he would, they would have no recourse in court. His soldiers would take their land. It was horrible the way the Baptists were treated in North Carolina. So a group of them gathered together, and they called themselves the Regulators. And they were trying to regulate the intemperate behavior of Lord Tryon. And there were some Quakers, but mostly Baptists. Well, they tried to stand up to Tryon at a place called Alamance County. You can go to Alamance County today. There's a marker there, and they call it the First Battle of the Revolutionary War. What it was was a group of farmers there to meet with Tryon. Tryon's troops came and opened fire on these people and their families, killing many of our Baptist forefathers. The next thing that he did, let me back up a little bit. How many of you have ever heard of the Great Awakening? Great Awakening. George Whitfield. Now, I'm thankful that George Whitfield came and preached the gospel, aren't you? Amen. But he was an Anglican. He was never scripturally baptized, and he never scripturally baptized anyone else. He was famously known to say that what happened was after the Great Awakening, he would come, and remember, the Anglicans didn't like George Whitfield either. They wouldn't let him preach in the Anglican churches because he believed that you must be born again. They believed that you got baptized. You didn't need an experience. He said you must experience the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was asked by a reporter, why do you always preach you must be born again? He said, because you must be born again. That's good stuff, isn't it? Amen. Well, what happened was, when a person is born again, they have a King James Bible, they have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in them, all of a sudden they start seeing that the things they'd been taught at the Anglican and Congregational churches were not right. doesn't take long to see that. And so they, all, they, a great number of those saved in the Great Awakening associated with the Baptists. So many that George Whitfield in his diary said, all my chickens have turned to ducks. He didn't like it. Well, what happened was there was a man named Shubal Stearns who got saved under the preaching of George Whitfield. He was baptized by Wade Palmer. 
He was sent to, he, he had heard that people needed, the, that's in Connecticut, he had heard that people are, are riding their horses 40 miles in North Carolina to hear the preaching of the gospel. So he goes to North Carolina and starts the Sandy Creek Baptist Church. The Sandy Creek Baptist Church began with about 12 people. Within the next few years, it had over 600 members. Out of that church, within 15 years, they have started, listen to this, 48 churches started out of Sandy Creek Baptist Church within 15 years. 125 men called to pastor. It's an amazing thing. Over the next 100 years, out of that church, there came more than 1,000 Baptist churches. And today, there are more than 3,000 Baptist churches in America that can trace their heritage directly back to the Sandy Creek Baptist Church and the Sandy Creek Revival. Let me explain something to you that's very important. How many of you have heard of the Great Awakening? Anybody know how long it lasted? About 30 years. That's, that's the, the consensus. How long did the Sandy Creek Revival last? It's not over yet. Because true revival doesn't end. True revival is not some goosebump feeling. True revival is when, become, when men and women become obedient to the Word of God. And God does a work in their hearts. That's what revival is. Amen? Revival is not some strange national movement. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. How many of you have heard that preached for revival? How's your land? I've got to mow my grass twice a week. We've got so many tomatoes, we've got to give them away. How's your land? It's just fine. Nothing wrong with our land. See what we do? We allegorize Scripture. That, that passage is talking about when Jesus Christ comes back and establishes His kingdom, and He has to heal the land because He just absolutely destroyed it in the tribulation period. He talks about, That's all through the Bible where He's got to come back and heal their land because He destroyed it. That's not revival. Revival doesn't have, nothing to do, it doesn't have anything to do with our property. Biblical revival takes place in our hearts. And it doesn't end. It doesn't end that my church, Grace Baptist Church, Sydney, Ohio, is a direct result of the Sandy Creek Revival. Right now, we're starting a church in Columbus. We're starting another church in Iowa. We're starting another church. We've got six of them going right now. All over the place. The Sandy Creek Revival is not over. Why'd the Great Awakening end? Because those people got saved. They had children. And they presented those children to the Anglican priest for baptism. And those kids were never saved. Now, don't miss this. People love to exalt George Whitfield. And I praise God for every person that was saved in the ministry of George Whitfield. You all agree with that? But what about the next generation that went to hell? Because of the church that George Whitfield refused to separate from. Folks, we're crazy. We're crazy. We must understand the significance of the truth. So, 1754, Shubal Stearns goes and started the Sandy Creek Baptist Church. 1771 is the Battle of Alamance County. The Baptists are standing up against England. 
The Anglicans and Presbyterians were the, the, the militia that fought on the side. They were called loyalists. They fought on the side of England. They came and fired on their neighbors, the Baptists. Do you know where Tryon took his troops to camp? Right after the Battle of Alamance County, the first battle in the Revolutionary War, 1771. Do you know where he took his troops? To Sandy Creek Baptist Church and camped there. Because Baptists have always stood for liberty. What happened? Membership was 606. It went down to 12. But those people went everywhere preaching the gospel. They went into Virginia. They went into South Carolina. They went into uh, what became Tennessee, or they went into Kentucky, or uh, Tennessee and what became Kentucky. And they established churches. And they stayed away from everything that was going on in the Revolutionary War in the South. But when Tryon camped at Sandy Creek, Abraham Marshall's brother, Joseph Marshall, had a church with 900 members. One of the members was one of the leaders of the regulators, a Baptist man named Benjamin Merrill. Benjamin Merrill was one of 12 that Tryon took. And in front of Merrill's family, listen, he was hung, and before he died, was cut open his insides were pulled out and burned in front of his face before he died that's what hung drawn and quartered means with his wife and children standing there watching him a Baptist leader for the cause of liberty folks I was free born that liberty cost Daniel or cost Benjamin Merrill a great price. At the same time, up in the north, 1772, there were a group of people in in Rhode Island, and England had called for a blockade because Rhode Island was becoming so prosperous. Well, the name of the ship was the Gaspy. The Gaspy came aground chasing the goods of a man named John Brown, a Baptist deacon, businessman. So a bunch of these Baptists got together, boarded that ship, got the men off, and blew it up. That was a year before the Boston Tea Party. We don't know about it. Why don't we know about it? Because they were Baptists. They weren't a part of the established church, the state church. And the Protestants have controlled the media, and they've controlled the history books. They've controlled all of it. Go online. Check out the Gatsby Affair. The information is there for us. Baptists cared deeply about liberty and freedom and the right to do business, the right to worship, the right to preach, the right to assemble. Those are Baptist doctrines. We must understand that. There was a man named Andrew Tribble. How many of you have heard of Andrew Tribble? Andrew Tribble was the pastor of the Buck Mountain Baptist Church, which was right near where Thomas Jefferson lived in Virginia. Jefferson would come and visit their church meetings and their business meetings. Well, he invited, Jefferson invited the Baptist preacher Tribble to his home, and he said this to him. He said, Mr. Tribble said to Jefferson, 
Mr. Jefferson, what do you think of our church government? And he said, I like it very much. I believe it would be the best form of government for our new nation. Don't you think that's something that Baptists ought to know? Seriously. Don't you think that's something Baptists ought to know? And so he pastored there, Tribble pastored there, and he came down to Kentucky, planted churches in Kentucky. He's buried there in Kentucky, and there's a, we've, as the Baptist History Preservation Society have just put a monument there at his church, the Tate's Creek Baptist Church near Georgetown, Kentucky. He ordained a man named Squire Boone to the ministry out of his church. Anyone ever heard of Daniel Boone? Daniel Boone was a man, right? Well, Daniel Boone was a Baptist. Not always a very good Baptist, but he was a Baptist. Well, his brother, Squire Boone, was a man of God. And Squire Boone came into Indiana and planted churches and preached all through this territory and fought for liberty in this country. Andrew Tribble, men like Andrew Tribble were so important. John Leland was a Baptist preacher in Massachusetts, but he had been down in Virginia. While he was pastoring in Virginia, the colonies were passing. They were trying to ratify their constitution. Remember, Revolutionary War started 1776. 1782 was when the, the, the war ended. It was a long war. But it wasn't until 1787, 1789. Which one was it where the Constitution was ratified? I'm drawing a blank. What year was it? Huh? 1789? So when the Constitution was ratified, there was a problem. James Madison, who had written it, wasn't going to be elected to the Constitutional Convention. Patrick Henry was going to be elected from Virginia. Why? Because the Baptists had grown so much in Virginia that they were going to elect Patrick Henry. Why were they going to elect Patrick Henry? Because Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson had heard about the persecution of the Baptists. There were like 138 Baptist preachers imprisoned in Virginia for preaching the gospel. There was one time when four of them had been arrested. Patrick Henry heard about it. He rode his horse more than 40 miles to the courthouse. He walks in and he hears the indictment read. These men are uh, indicted for the misdemeanor, and misdemeanor was a heavy charge then, for a misdemeanor of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ without a license. And he said, he walked into the courthouse and he said, he said if, if it would allow your, your lordship, did I hear what I seem to hear? And he walked forward and he got the indictment. He picked the indictment up off of the off of the table and he said did I hear what I seem to hear that these men are indicted for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ good God the place is in stunned silence this is Patrick Henry and he said in a day when men are about to throw off the manacles of oppression these men, a time when we need the preaching of Jesus Christ. These men are arrested for, what does it say here? Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? Good God! The judge said, case dismissed. <laughs> that, that's the way that Patrick Henry felt about liberty. He was a great friend of the Baptists, so the Baptists were going to elect him to office there in Virginia. 
James Madison came, and you can go to Virginia right now, Orange County, Virginia. There's a plaque at the park where it took, there's a park now where it took place. James Madison met with the Baptist preacher, John Leland. And what was their complaint? What was the Baptist's complaint about the new Constitution? There was no provision for religious liberty. And they were afraid that there would be a state church. And any time there's a state church, the Baptists are persecuted. So James Madison secures a promise. John Leland secures a promise from James Madison. He said, if you'll send me, I will make sure that my first order of business is an amendment granting religious liberty. Uh, if you go to Philadelphia now and you go to the Independence Hall and you'll see the room where they ratified the Constitution, they'll tell you that Rhode Island refused to ratify the Constitution. Why? Because the Baptists were afraid there was not going to be religious liberty. The Baptists in Virginia wrote a letter to George Washington. And they said, because you are such a friend of liberty, because you are such a friend of the Baptists, you need to know this. And I should have brought it. I have a book called Indiana Baptist History. And in this book called Indiana Baptist History, there is an account of the, of the letter that these Baptists sent to George Washington. And in it is the very wording of the Religious Liberty Clause of the First Amendment. Baptists wrote the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. Everyone in the world, you understand, there was no religious liberty in the world, only here in America. It is from here that religious liberty has spread to other places in the world. During the Revolutionary War, the Baptist preachers in England were on America's side. Because we need a place where men can be free. John Ryland wrote that. Great English Baptist preacher. So we're granted the First Amendment. Why was Washington amenable to the Baptists? Well, because in the Revolutionary War, he was a member. How many of you remember during 9-11, the church, where the firefighters would go and rest and get water? How many of you remember seeing those pictures? That church is the church that George, it's the same building, it's the church that George Washington attended when he was the commander-in-chief of the American forces. But it was the Church of England. So the Church of England, who is the head of the Church of England? The king. So during the war, King George's priest is standing there speaking against the war with the commander-in-chief sitting right there. He would no longer take communion there. He would no longer stand. He would no longer pray with them. But he was an Anglican. He was born an Anglican. He was baptized an Anglican. It's part of who you were. But in the afternoon, he would walk across town to First Baptist Church where John Gano was the pastor and the Baptist preacher was still going. Amen? Kind of like tonight. Well, the war, the war started. The war starts moving ahead in force. And as we said this morning... 40% of the chaplains during the Revolutionary War were Baptist. Well, John Gano was George Washington's chaplain. And there was a time, there was one great battle where the, the, the forces under Washington were losing the battle. And men were coming back from the front. They were running away and 
Gano saw it and he couldn't, he, it, it just, he couldn't stand it. And his place, the place of the chaplain, was with the sick and with the wounded. And Gano said, the next thing I knew, before I even knew where it was, I grabbed a, sol- a, a rifle from a fleeing soldier. And I'm running to the front. And all of a sudden, I'm way out in front of the troops. But seeing the Baptist chaplain run to the front, firing on the enemy, it spurred on the forces, and they turned and routed the enemy. And George Washington is up on the top of the mountain watching the battle, watching his crazy Baptist chaplain run to the front. And he said, that's the kind of man that I would want to follow. If you remember, at the end of the war, General Cornwallis would not surrender his sword. General Lafayette surrendered his sword. George Washington came to the Baptist preacher, John Gaynor, and he said, I surrender my sword to you. Will you baptize me? And John Gaynor baptized George Washington in the Potomac River. The man became a Baptist. You can go to Independence, Kansas right now, to William Jewell College, go to the John Gaynor Chapel. You can see a painting of John Gano baptizing George Washington and the sword is right there. You can go see it. You see, we have a great heritage in America. We have Baptists that fought for liberty, that stood for liberty. They cared about these things. And what was the basis of that? Well, our doctrine of the church, our doctrine of the priesthood of the believer, our doctrine of separation of church and state, our doctrine of individual soul liberty, and our, our doctrine of believer's baptism, all of that led to the liberty and freedom that we have here in America. One last story. Remember what happened. Battle of Alamance County, 1771. By 1780, the war is going terribly for America. I don't know if you knew it, but we were losing the Revolutionary War. Cornwallis had just taken Charleston, and what happened was there was a man named Tarleton. He was a colonel in the British Army, and Tarleton was a vicious and wicked and cruel man. He's one of the men that would put the people in a church and burn them to death during the Revolutionary War. Well, what happened was these Baptists in America, they're very independent people, especially in the South, and so they had been scattered after... Tryon came and camped at Sandy Creek. They went to North Car- they went to South Carolina, Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee. Well, after the fall of Charleston, the governor of either North or South Carolina was being transported away. This is a he was a, a friend of the Americans. He was being transported away by a man named General Buford. Well, Buford's troops were caught by Tarleton's troops. They were overcome in the battle, and they surrendered. Put their guns down, got down on their knees, and surrendered. And Tarleton sent his men in and massacred them. You can read about it. Well, the mountain men, these Baptists, they heard about that. And so what the British were afraid of were our militia. They weren't that afraid of our standing armies. They were really afraid of our mountain men militia. And they should have been. And what happened was they, Cornwallis called one of his men named Colonel Ferguson. How many of you have heard of the Ferguson rifle? That's Ferguson, Patrick Ferguson. And he sent Patrick Ferguson to subdue with his trained soldiers, trained in their, all their special shooting and all of that, to cut down these militia. Well, Ferguson 
sent a letter over the mountain to the Baptists and said, I'm coming. If you give me any resistance, I'm going to burn your farms and hang your men. They tarred and feather the messenger, sent it back with a note tarred to him, to Ferguson, and said, we're coming to you. Anyone ever heard of the over-the-mountain men? That's who they were. See, there was a man named Tidens Lane. Tidens Lane was a Baptist preacher. He started the first Baptist church in Tennessee. That church still exists. It's the Buffalo Ridge Baptist Church, still an independent Baptist church today. Tidens Lane and his nine sons came and fought at the battle of King's Mountain. Let me tell you the story of the battle of King's Mountain. Patrick Ferguson got to the top of King's Mountain, but he had heard, he had heard that he was getting ready to go and attack the mountain men, the people over in the different communities. So there was a man named uh, Colonel John Severe. Anyone ever heard of Sevierville, Tennessee? John Severe was a Baptist. He was a Baptist deacon. He was one of the first representatives to the Baptist Association in that area. And what he did was he had gathered men together, and he had said, we need to warn our other men in Virginia. Anyone here ever heard of Paul Revere? Paul Revere rode between eight and nine miles. That the British are coming, one if by land, two if by sea. You all have heard that, right? And we're glad he did that. That was an important thing. Martin Gamble, Martin Gamble was a Baptist deacon who lived in that area. He volunteered to take the message to Virginia. So in, listen to this. In 24 hours, he rode more than 120 miles. He rode three horses. He rode two of his horses to death to go and tell the Baptists that Kings Mountain, we need to come to Kings Mountain. That's where Patrick Ferguson is. And what happened? The Baptists came over the mountain. They came running through the mountains. These guys were crazy, man. And here you have 12 to 1,300 trained troops on the battle on, on top of Kings Mountain. You know what Ferguson said? God himself couldn't remove me from this mountain. battle lasted 65 minutes. More than 300 of Ferguson's soldiers were killed. The, they were surrounded and shots were fired before they knew the over-the-mountain men were even there. And almost all of those men were members of Baptist churches. And they got up to the top, Patrick Ferguson, he was trying to make a retreat. And so he put a, a checkered shirt on over his red coat. Someone had heard. They announced, he's wearing a checkered shirt. He's wearing a checkered shirt. They saw him riding across. He was shot by seven different men. Cast over the hill, and they threw rocks on him. You can go there today up to the monument at King's Mountain, and there's the spot where they think it is, and you can throw a rock on top of the pile. <laughs> That's not politically correct, but I like it. Amen? Can I tell you something? God did remove him from that mountain through the instrumentality of Baptist men of God who loved liberty. You can ask any historian, you can read any history book. The Battle of King's Mountain was the turning point in the Revolutionary War. Cornwallis was defeated, and he knew that if the militia were against him, he could not win the war. It boosted the morale of the troops in the north, and we ended up winning the Revolutionary War. If you love your freedom, 
it is owed to Baptists in America. Amen? Folks, we need Baptists to stand up for liberty again. Don't let anybody tell you you can't pray at school. Young people, if you want to take your Bible to school, take your Bible to school and read it. And if anybody doesn't like it, tell them to call your pastor. and He'll stand behind you. He'll take care of it. Amen, Brother Pierce? We will stand with you. Folks, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. There was a time in our world where the only place where liberty was known was in Rhode Island. Through the work of John Clark, through the work of Obadiah Holmes, through the work of those great Baptists in the 1600s, we have liberty today. Folks, let's not give it up. Let's not give it up. From Indiana, you have one of the greatest Baptists in the history. You have the greatest Baptist missionary in America was a famous man in Indiana. His name was Isaac McCoy. Isaac McCoy came out of the first Baptist church here in the state. It was a Silver Creek Baptist church. He started the fourth Baptist church in the state, Maria Creek Baptist Church. Out of that, he ended up going to Fort Wayne. He started Fort Wayne, Indiana. He founded Grand Rapids, Michigan. His, his son founded Kansas City, Missouri. What is he famous for, Isaac McCoy? Well, he was a Baptist preacher, but he was also famous for saving the Indians. You see, they were considered a sub-race, and they were dying. They were being killed. And so he made all these trips back and forth to Washington to establish the Indian reservation system so that they could be saved alive so that he could preach the gospel to them. And you want to know what that sacrifice cost him? He had 14 children. Eleven of them died on the mission field. Eleven of his 14 children so that he could preach the gospel to the Indians. This is a man that ministered much of his early years in the state of Indiana. And we don't know anything about him. We know about David Brainerd, who may have had 10 or 15 people saved in his whole ministry. The only reason we know about him is he caught tuberculosis and he was engaged to Jonathan Edwards' daughter. Jonathan Edwards published his diary and we became familiar with David Brainerd. Why don't we know about Isaac McCoy? Folks, we need to know about these great men of God who sacrificed so much for us. Isaac McCoy, started the, he preached the first sermon of any kind in Chicago. He started the first Baptist church in Michigan. He started one of the early Baptist churches in Ohio. He started the first Baptist church in Oklahoma. This man is vitally important to our heritage. We don't even know who he is. Folks, we need to thank God for people who loved the church, who loved the Word of God, who loved liberty, and we need to remember, we were freeborn, but they weren't. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name.